This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we're continuing the chat with Aussie Firebug, and this is part two. Now, the actual interview went for a very long time. So we've actually split the episode into two episodes and this is part two. I hope you enjoy. So welcome back everyone. Uh, I've got AFB here, Aussie Firebuck. So thank you very much for your time. And we, we really haven't really talked about hardcore money. And <laughs> and this, is, this always happens. Like when I talk to people, the intention is we're going to talk about money and finances and fees. We've really talked about life and career. I love it. We? I love it, Dev. This is this is I'm, I'm so much more about this this topic these days than about the investing. We can go into it, but I, I love I love having these conversations, mate. Now, there's been a lot of talk about inflation and the war and lots of uncertainty globally and RBA raising interest rates, etc. Economic uncertainties, etc. And Healthcare workers are very vulnerable to that because they see it on the TV. They talk about it at the water cooler conversations. And sometimes I hear it from patients. You know, we see patients that have lost their jobs and have a mental breakdown and have depression, anxiety. And you sort of go, oh, okay, well, that's that's a terrible, terrible thing. So how does that change your investing? Or do you just go, nah, can't be bothered. I'm not paying attention to any of that. Good question. It's sort of impossible not to pay attention to it uh, completely just because it's all over Twitter, you know, the news any social media that you go into, you're going to sort of get bombarded with it. And it's a serious thing. I mean, Ukraine and Russia, I'm not any, I'm not a geopolitical expert by any means. I'm not even an expert investor, you know, to be honest, but it's very concerning what's happening. And like the potential of something uh, disastrous happening is, you know, it's there. So of course it's, I'm paying attention to it um, a little bit. But I'm not letting it rule my life or anything like that. And from an investing point of view, if we just stick to investing, uh, probably the, the biggest thing for us when it comes to investing was really not having a secure job. Before that, I was very much dollar cost average into ETFs. Um, we had our, our splits. So we invest in uh, the US market, the world minus US and Australia. That's our three split portfolio. Yeah. And we had our allocations and I'll be honest, like these allocations have changed over time. I think that's like, it's not, that's normal. That's human uh, to, to have the, those change. They say, you know, like stick to an allocation, don't change it ever, but very hard to, like we're, we're not investing in robots, very hard to. And when I say it changes, it might be, you know, 60% 
US and now I've changed it to 40% just because that's what we're more comfortable with now, helps us sleep at night, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, I've been a big fan of dollar cost averaging into the market no matter what it's doing. I've always done that, me and my wife, and we've pretty much stuck true to that our whole investing career, even through COVID. And you can look back, this is the beauty of having a blog where you document what you do. It's there on the internet and you can see that we were investing tens of thousands of dollars as you know the portfolio was losing six-figure sums during COVID, pretty scary times. Um, and that worked out phenomenally for us. And the biggest probably change in the last couple of years is when I didn't have a permanent job anymore. And all that meant for, for from an investing point of view is that we wanted a little bit more dry powder in the portfolio, a little bit more cash. So the cash allocation traditionally for us has always been really low, a lot really low. We've sort of had that emergency fund of mm-hmm. 20K, 25K or whatever. Now that's, for me, that's like, relatively low, I guess, but for maybe some people I've seen, you know, fly by the the, um, see, the skin of their teeth or whatever the saying is uh, on maybe a $1,000, $2,000 in the emergency fund and they'll just pour all their money into their portfolio. That isn't the way that me and my wife did it. We always had a decent emergency fund, but since moving away from full-time work, that emergency fund has reached as high as, I think we got up to like 80 something thousand dollars in cash the other month which is very high. And it's probably too high for my liking. We were saving for a new car as well. So that played into it. I mean, it's sitting in the offset against our mortgage. So Mm. it's not doing nothing. And as interest rates rise, it's doing a little bit more. But it's with how much inflation is going up, I was looking at that sum of money thinking, hmm, a good chunk of that should probably be in the markets, you know, working a little bit harder for me. But other than that, we've pretty much done the same thing since we've been in the stock market since 2016, and that's to dollar cost average into our uh, three three fund split um, every month at the end of the month. That's how that's how we've done it. And and your net worth that you publish, I think every month, is that your figure that is income producing, or does it actually take into account your uh, house, for example? Yeah, it's uh the the figure that I publish is all our assets minus our debt, which includes the house. But then within the article, there is the fire portfolio. So, right. and this, there's arguments between this, you know, in the community. But me personally, I don't include your home in your fire portfolio because it's not generating income. It's costing you money, but it's not actually generating you income so you can live off it unless I know there's strategies around, you know, withdrawing equity out of your house. You can rent out a granny flat at the back. You know, there's always little tricks and um, nuances, but generally speaking, it's costing you money. It's not making you money. So I don't include it in the FIRE portfolio. That's a separate number, which I publish every month alongside the net worth. And I think your dividends, you actually cash it out and you reallocate it based on what you want to reallocate as opposed to dividend reinvestment plans. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Cool. No worries. Do you worry that, um, I suppose in your case, you and I are going on to bigger and brighter things with company and all that sort of stuff. But let's say the average person is looking for financial independence. They've reached their FI number and they want to work less. They want to work one day a week, two days a week, et cetera. For that sort of person, the concern is that there is some element of dignity in doing some work, you know, going to the office and meeting people and sharing in the burden. You know, when I work in a hospital setting, um, I speak to other clinicians, other nurses, allied health, 
and we talk about life and what they did for their weekend and all that. So there's a bit of mental stimulation. There's a bit of social networking uh, offline, so to speak. What do you say to people that are concerned that if we all just did financial independence and work less and all that sort of stuff, then we may become antisocial or our social skills sort of start going away or our mental stimulation start going away? Is that a concern? Not really because I don't think financial independence or FIRE means that you stop doing work. I've always said this. It, it doesn't – meaningful work is – a fundamental thing a human being needs to be happy, in my opinion. It's just a matter of how you frame it, really. I, I, and there, there's some people that want to volunteer, that don't get paid, you know, want to do that sort of work, non-for-profit. But it's still uh, still what I would consider work, but it's mm. meaningful work. It brings purpose to your life. Um, so I think there is just some I think people get caught up too much in the definition of the, like the retire early part. They think, oh, so you don't work. And then it's like, no, we do work. And they're they're like, oh, so you're not really retired. And hey, if you want to, you know, retire is probably not the right word. You know, you can argue um, on definitions and and whatnot, but really the meaning, the meaningful work component is really what it's about. And I think that if every person can, even if they don't get to be fully financially independent, even just get halfway there, it is insane what it does to your psyche to know that you've got a little bit of income supplementing your lifestyle and that you're you're freer than you were before. It is, I'm telling people out there listening, if you're not quite there, like keep going because it is really a special feeling to not feel trapped at your job. And when you go to work because you want to go to work, not because you need to go to work, mm. things change. Things change and you do better work you're a happier person. You'll you'll be you'll bring a better version of yourself home to you, your family, your partner, to your friends, your community. It, it is awesome, and I've yeah I've got no worries about everyone reaching financial independence and just suddenly um, losing their purpose in life. I, I do think though, in saying that, people do struggle finding a purpose outside of their job, maybe. And I think that there is there are some people, and I've read about this, where they will reach the goal. They reach their fire number and they say, now what? And and I think not enough people on this journey are thinking past the FI part of fire. Because that this is a common like um trap. Maybe I see people. They're like, oh, we only care about the FI, we don't care about RE. Well, it depends on what their interpretation of RE is. But for me, RE is what it's all about. There, it the FI is a means to an end. You you need like you need the the finances to to live the better life. But if you never RE, what is the point of FI? Some people are lucky to be working in a fantastic job. Meaningful work brings them purpose already. I, I'd say that those people have already sort of got the. RE part figured out. It's just that they want to be a bit more free, have some more time back in their life, whatever it is. But there's a lot of people out there, and I fell into this, that I. it's not that I hated my job. It's just that I didn't want to be there for 40 hours a week, and I felt like it took up too much of my life, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do after the FI part. And you, you need to be almost a little bit bored, read some books, go traveling, broaden your horizons to really discover what that next chapter of your life looks like. And I'm blessed to be in the situation where I feel like I'm starting that next chapter of my life already. And I'm doing it without even reaching, you know, full fire at the moment. So I'm sort of leap, leapfrogging the process, but I'm really excited about that. 
you know, I hope everyone out there listening gets to experience that feeling as well. Yeah, I think it's 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 a good point, and, and even I think I, I did a recent episode about retirement, and when I looked at the data, when people actually retire at the age of sixty or sixty-five, that kind of lasts for about three years, and then after three years, they're sort of like, hmm, I'm getting bored now. I'm a little bit worried about mental stimulation. I want to do something else, uh, go back to work, paid, unpaid, whatever it is. So um, even in that late stage of retirement, uh, you know, people do struggle to just hang up their boots and not do anything for the rest of their life because it's unstructured. So uh, you raised some really, really good points there. Personal insurance. Um, I think you have spoken about it in some of your episodes, but are you concerned that people that are looking for FI are not factoring personal insurance. There's a lot of changes with income protection, life insurance, a lot of changes have happened since the pandemic. Do you have personal insurance, for example? And what would your recommendation be for someone of your age who's trying to achieve what you've achieved? Should they worry about it or should they ignore it? Because it costs a lot of money, uh, AFB. It costs, costs a significant amount of money and it's an opportunity cost for some of them might say, well, actually, if I put it into the market, I'd get a significant return. So why would I spend money on insurance? Yeah. So when you say a personal insurance, are you talking about life and death? death yeah. Life insurance, or- um, income protection, TPD, total permanent disability yeah. and yeah. trauma. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is a polarizing topic for sure. Uh, we don't have that. We don't have that insurance. Um, I mean, I, I think we technically do through super. super yeah. You'd have default. Yep. Yeah. Default. I think, does everyone have the, the default insurance? I'm pretty sure they do. I think I think legislatively you have to, um, yeah. but it's like 100K or something very, very small. Yeah, um, that's what Everyone I, yeah. does. And and what's interesting for all our listeners, and I, and, and I won't hold you up too much, is that if you have a default income protection in your super and you have income protection outside of super, you can't claim both. The higher amount uh, can be claimed um, because you need to declare to the one outside of super that you've got one in super because a lot of people think they can actually claim both. I'm pretty sure you can't. But the life insurance component outside of super and within super, yes, you can claim both. So if you die, your beneficiary can apply for life insurance through your personal insurance, which is outside of super. Uh, and then if you got default cover within super, then you get paid out as well. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you go ahead with your experience with insurance. Yeah, that, that was actually really interesting, just that little factoid there, Dev, didn't know that. Um, so we, we, we don't have it outside the default option. We never have, me and my wife. Uh, we're at the stage now where, I mean, I haven't looked at how much it would cost, but I, I yeah, I, I think it is a, a fair chunk um, of money. Not as much money when you're young and healthy, I think. It's more as you age, it starts to really ramp up. But my view on it, I mean, I, I don't like to rec- recommend anything or tell people what to do. I just, this is how I've I, we've done it growing up. Um, we didn't have it. I think the biggest thing for us is we never had a dependent hmm. uh, relying on our income. It was always, you know, my wife worked, I worked, and I never felt the need to. If something terrible happened to me, I have a will and I have things in place that will sort out our um, finances uh, or, you know, there, there's a, there's a, uh, there's structures and um, steps in place. If, or if, if something were to happen to me, then um, people know what to do. And the same with my wife. So I'm very comfortable with our situation now. I think if we had kids in our twenties, it would be different, mm. but just how it's played out, 
I never really felt the the need to get it. And that's just my opinion. There are some people out there probably listening that's like, oh my God, you don't horrified. have um, the insurance. There's, there's healthcare workers out yeah, there horrified. listening, horrified. <laughs> no, just, but, but, but just to pick up on that point, does that mean that if you were to have children, what you're saying is because you're relatively financially independent, you're kind of self-insured. So you don't need to go and purchase that bit, insurance. Yeah. Is, that, is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 To, to be fair, I'd probably look at it. I'd probably look at it, you know, just to see how much it costs, what it offers and everything. But it would have to be a pretty good deal for me to start paying for it at this point in our lives. Uh, we only really have like insurance is such a funny topic because it makes sense. Like it, it seems it's like the smart thing to do, but I hate, everyone hates paying insurance. Everyone hates paying insurance until they need to use it. Right. And I just, there's some insurances that annoy the hell out of me. Like when you rent a car, when you're on a holiday mm. and they, they smack you with the insurance, I, it's like, ah, like the odds of me getting into a car accident are so low, but the consequences are so high. So we've only really ever paid for um, house, I think is a no brainer. That is a, you know, it's so cheap. And for something to happen, like I just think that's a, a good one to have, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And car, and that's really about it. We don't like might shock some people. My wife's wedding ring, which was um, decently expensive, uh, we don't insure that, you know, because mm-hmm. I've looked at how much it is on the the house insurance, and it's so much more money than I that I was comfortable with. I was like, hey, just don't lose your your engagement ring. For I think I worked it out to be like six years, the payback period. Just don't lose it for six years, and we will buy a new one if you lose it. That's mm. we're going to be, you know, coming out ahead there. The the same can't be said for house insurance and and car. But there, I think like ninety percent of insurances, uh, I'm not going to say a scam, but they're just rip offs, in my opinion. Um, can will you find a story about someone you know losing their wedding ring? Of course you will, and obviously it worked out for them, but. I, yeah, I've got some funny opinions about insurances. Um, and with the life one, I, I really think if we had kids earlier, I would have looked at it more seriously, but mm. stage we are in our, li- in our lives at the moment, it's not something I'm probably going to mm. do. You know, what's interesting is when I talk to a lot of healthcare workers, even though we're in the space, a lot of them don't have insurance. Uh, it's, I mean, I speak to a lot of doctors who don't have personal insurance and I'm like, what do you mean? You're a, a person working, uh, treating people that are ill, and you don't have personal insurance. Um, and they're like, oh, actually, that's a good point. Oh, I haven't actually thought about it and all that sort of stuff. But they do have car insurance, like you said. They do have home insurance. They do have contents insurance and building insurance. So it's it's interesting. Did, did your parents have personal insurance? Um, is that something that was – did they have it? That's a good question. I don't – I actually don't know the answer to that, Dev. I, I don't think so. I'm going to. I think, I think back then probably it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't something nah. that it was outright spoken about. Um, I don't yeah. think my parents had personal insurance. Um, uh, it, it's certainly something that's a bit more widespread um, in the 21st century. And, uh, you know, I, I tell you, when I do hire a car, and because I use a pseudoname and I can be honest about it, I do get that insurance. You know why? Because I'm going to beat the hell out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a defensive driver at all, and um, and all you car rental companies because it's like an extra like twenty bucks a day or something. It actually adds up 
quite significant I'm amount say, of money. Sometimes it's like 50 or 60 yeah. or something ridiculous. <laughs> That's why it kills me to pay it. I'm like, oh my God, this is such a ripoff. But then it's like it, the, the consequences are so great. I'm just like, oh, I'll pay it. But it's annoying the hell out of me. <laughs> I, I, I always get it because with kids, you know, my, my kids, you know, oh, yeah. uh, you know, the, the sometimes scratching the car or, you know, you know, it's hard to, hard to control the behavior of your kids as much as you'd like to. Uh, so I always get it and I always make sure that, um, I always take. I, I actually, this is this is the self-confessed tight ass in me. I always take <laughs> photos of any damage to the car prior. I go around. Oh yeah. Uh, I document it, then I go back inside. Say, hey, by the way, this this particular dent wasn't accounted for, and you know, because you never. I, know. I do a video. Ten eighty p, sixty frames per second. Right. I get every little nook like that. That's the the oldest you know trick in the book. Video nice. photos before you before you drive it for sure. That's right. That's right. And um, yeah, I, I certainly do that as well. But uh, certainly get insurance to beat the hell out of the car. So if you're a car rental insurance company, <laughs> uh, if you got Dev Raga driving it, you know <laughs> that the tires are going to be worn out by the time by the time I return it. Now, on that note, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, I've just got a few more questions, and we'll go into private health insurance and the fire number, and sort of close it out. Uh, so we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, in the topic of insurance, private health. Um, so do you have private health insurance? Yes. This is something that we, me and my wife got, uh, when we come back to Australia last mm-hmm. year, the start of last year. And I did a fair amount of research on this. Now you, you're going to know a lot more about this than mm. me, Dev, but this is what I basically concluded. I'm a pretty active, uh, guy. I ride my bike. I play sports. I, Trust the public system. I trust both systems. It's not that I don't trust it, but I'm very happy with, um, for, and from what I've read, with the service level you get and the wait times and everything for if a, a catastrophe happened in my life and I, I needed surgery or something or you know I was ma- mangled pretty bad and I needed to be helped out, I think the public system is fantastic and you're probably, you know, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dev. But I agree. The public system's awesome for, okay, so for that sort of stuff. Where the... the Pretty much the sole reason 
we went down the private health was for, and I think this terminology is correct. Is it elective surgeries? Is that correct. where you don't, yeah, you're not going to die or something. So basically I was just like, if I fall off my bike and it's not life and death, but it's an injury that is going to be a bane in, in, on my existence. Like it's going to impact my lifestyle or if I, move hard indoor netball and I tear my ACL or something, I have the money, I'm rich, we're wealthy enough to pay private health. This is the conclusion I reached, to just pay the private health and then to be able to get that surgery and to get fixed up uh, quicker than I otherwise would have through the public system. And that's really all it boiled down to. Very, I'm very, I think our um, public system is world-class, it's awesome, but we have the money to be able to, get fixed up quicker for um, non-life-threatening surgeries. And that's basically why we did it. So you did end up getting insurance for private health, you mean? Yes. Or, yeah, yeah. Yes, so yes, yeah. yeah, it's one of the things about the public system. I, I agree. I, I work entirely in the public system and I think it's marvellous that at the point of care that patients don't have to pay. Um, now, for Australian listeners, and I do have some American listeners listening in, um, it's a very foreign concept for our North American colleagues uh, particularly in the United States, Canada is different, obviously, where when they go to the hospital, the first thing they get asked is, do you have insurance? And um, whereas in Australia, I don't ask the financial status of any of my patients. I don't care when I first see them. But when I do diagnose someone, and I mainly work in uh, the emergency sector, is when I do diagnose someone with appendicitis or ankle fracture or whatever, my next question is, do you have private health insurance? Because and appendicitis is not life-threatening, uh, imminently life-threatening. Ankle fracture is not imminently life-threatening. I do ask them, do you have private health insurance? Because it means that I can then speak to a private surgeon and get them off to a private hospital fairly efficiently. Now, if they say no, that's completely fine. They'll still get pain relief. They'll still get antibiotics. They'll still get a drip. And I'll speak to the surgical registrar on call uh, who's training to be a surgeon, who will come and assess the patient. And there is a consultant on call who will supervise that surgeon and they will get their surgery. May not be the same day, maybe the next day or the day after. So you get a little bit of delayed care. One of the things that really irks me about the public system is it takes into account life-threatening situations really well. So multi-trauma, brain tumours, brain hemorrhages, cancer patients, uh, heart attacks, strokes, etc. No major issues. Um, you know, you will get the care relatively promptly. What it doesn't take into account is morbidity. So for example, if you have arthritis um, and you are a tradesperson that is a bricklayer or whatever, you know, you're on your feet all the time and you've got arthritis, then if you don't have private health insurance, the response from the public system is, well, arthritis is uncomfortable it's painful. It's going to have a negative impact on your lifestyle, mm. but pain doesn't kill you. And it doesn't, you know, you, you can have 10 out of 10 pain, screaming in agony. You don't die from pain. You die from the underlying diagnosis. People generally don't die from arthritic conditions. I'm, I'm generalizing here. I mean, you could trip over as a result of unsteady balance and then sure. hit your head and then die. And this is the problem is that it doesn't take that into account. Whereas if you had private health insurance for something like that, I could ring up an orthopedic surgeon and say, hey, can you, you know, have a look at my patient within the next four weeks? You're on the operating table within, usually within eight weeks. Uh, of course, out-of-pocket costs and private health insurance costs and excess fees and gap fees and all that sort of stuff, which is controversial in itself. So when people ask me, 
you know, we have a universal healthcare system. Um, well, we don't. We have a universal health insurance system. Uh, it's not universal healthcare. And yes, we do have a two-tiered system. And yes, it's amazing, but it's got deficiencies. And um, uh, my recommendation to everyone is, like what you said, if you can afford private health insurance, then get it. Because what you consider as an emergency or an urgent problem is not what the health system considers as an emergency or an urgent problem. And I've had people with mangled ankles where, you know, fractured hips is a classical one. It's not unusual for fractured neck of femurs in the public system to wait three, four, five, six, seven days to have the hip fracture replaced uh, while you're in bed uh, because in the public system, yeah, fractured hip is, yeah, it's really bad. But I've got someone down the corridor who's got a brain tumour or a subdural hemorrhage or who's having a massive heart attack. I'm sorry, that's going to kill them today. I need mm-hmm. to get them to theatre and get them sorted. Your fractured hip is really important, but it's not going to kill you today. So you're going to have to wait for another few days. And this is something, and, and, and if you're a non-healthcare worker listening to me talking like this and I'm a doctor, it's very confronting, mm. but that's the difficult decisions that people have to make in the healthcare space all the time. So I totally agree. If you can afford it, just get it. It's a few hundred bucks a month and it has come in handy, certainly for me. I have private health insurance. Uh, we had our children in the private system um, and I've had we've had um, family members operated on the private system, but I've also had family members treated in the public system for very, very severe conditions. And it was marvellous. And uh, usually when we go public, we go to the public hospital and then we say, you know what, we've got private health insurance. You can actually be a private patient in the public hospital. Um, and that helps the funding out a little bit. So um, people worried about financial independence. I think private health insurance is something that does get factored in because if you're on fire, if you're on the journey of FI, you just need one health problem to derail you mm. for the rest of your life. Um, you just need that. Um, and unfortunately, I've, you know, I've, I've had colleagues who've passed away at the age of 40 from uh, cancer. I've had colleagues that have had major, major medical problems at a very young age. And that just puts them, you know, 10, 15, 20 years behind track. But, but sorry, uh, AFB, go ahead. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But I, I was just interested to get your thoughts and opinions on the whole uh, topic of some people think that the private healthcare is great because it relieves the public system. But I've come across threads on the internet and even comments in my Facebook group and, and you know other comments in the news and stuff that it, it's almost a bad thing if you pay for private health because it somehow um, takes it, it gives funding to the, like the private sector and it should all go into the public sector. I've read people pay not getting private health insurance so they um, they don't have to pay for the uh, Medicare uh, levy surcharge if you earn mm. over a certain amount in, in your levy, income. Yep. Yeah, they just pay it. They pay the levy because they say, oh, my money, I want my money to go into the public healthcare system. I don't want it to go into the private healthcare system because I don't want Australia to turn into America or something like that. Is that I'm, I'm interested to hear if you've, if you've heard those comments, what your thoughts are around that, because that is sort of, that's very interesting um, to me that some people think like that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear from yourself. Uh, and this is sort of digressing a little bit from the money side of things, but from a personal belief side of things and from a uh, social and societal structural side of things. Mm. So 
I have never met a healthcare worker, doctor, nurse, doesn't matter who they are, who believes that healthcare is not a human right in this country. I think all of us, the majority of healthcare workers, uh, I can't say 100%, but I'm sure there's a few people with different views, but a majority of healthcare workers in Australia believe, and that includes me, that everyone should have a right to healthcare and healthcare is a human right. That's number one. Number two is, does that mean that the public system is efficient enough to be able to handle it no matter how much money you throw at it? And the answer is no. Uh, And I think a significant majority of healthcare workers listening in would probably agree that yes, Medicare is efficient. Yes, the health system is efficient, but there are some inefficiencies in the system that needs to be looked at. So for example, when I'm trying to get a scan for a patient, if the scan is located in a private radiology company, it's a lot easier for me to get a scan for that patient. And of course, there's an out-of-pocket expense. If I had to get the same scan in a public hospital, there's a waiting list. I've got to deal with some admin roid who's going to book the patient in. Uh, the patient needs to you know, attend the appointment at the convenience of the hospital, whereas if they ring a private radiology company, the patient attends at the convenience of the patient's time. So uh, there are some inefficiencies in the system. Having said that, I am a little bit concerned in this country um, that I've, let's face it, I was born in India, but I was raised here. So for all intents and purposes, you know, without being, you know, uh, without being too outlandish, it's fair to say I'm a coconut. I'm brown on the outside, but I'm white (laughs) on the inside, right? So I believe that healthcare should be a human right, but I am concerned over the last sort of 10 or 15 years that if you had private health insurance or if you had a little bit more money, I am concerned that there are some cases that you will get better care, not quicker care, but better care. And I think when people say things like, I'm a little bit concerned that we are slowly migrating towards the US style healthcare system, which is called managed care, mm-hmm. I think there is some truth to that. I don't think it's as outlandish as what it is in the United States. Um, but I think there is some truth that we've got to be very careful. And, and, and I think I speak to a lot of healthcare workers who are a little bit concerned that, you know, we want to make sure that when we practice medicine or nursing, we want to make sure that financial status does not come into the play. So I do not want to be in a situation like my counterparts in the United States, where they need to get permission from the health insurance company, Mm. they need to run it past them in order to treat their patient or the patient has to ring up the health insurance company to get approval before treatment. That's insane. I don't want to to have a patient who's appendicitis and uh, I'd have to ring up the bloody health insurance company who's Mm. someone in admin making a clinical decision that I should be making between me and the patient. Um, and I think the majority of healthcare workers in Australia would vehemently uh, oppose any move by the Australian government or by any private health insurance agency to make it harder for patients and to get healthcare and doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers to provide healthcare. So unfortunately, you know, recently in the media, there's been a bit of a beat up about, you know, you know, Medicare and all that sort of stuff, right? But 
what has been published is not objective. It's a number of opinions about what people's feelings are. But the underlying message here is universally, majority of healthcare workers in Australia believe that if you rocked up to my clinic or if you rocked up to my emergency department or my hospital, we want to make sure that we provide healthcare first and talk about finances later and preferably not even talk about finances. Mm. And I think what's happened in the last eight to 15 years, and this I think is a deliberate attack on healthcare by the federal government of both parties, where they've frozen the Medicare rebates, that is the patient's rebate has been frozen, and with inflation, cost of utilities, cost of wages, cost of labour, cost of equipment, the fees for doctors have had to rise, just like fees for plumbing has had to rise and fees for coffee has to rise, and therefore the gap is getting wider and wider in terms of the healthcare cost for some patients. Now, I think what's happened... Sorry, AFB, I, I'm getting a little bit um, political, no, no, but I think it's really important that people understand this. For sure, Is for that sure. when you go to see a doctor or a healthcare worker and you say, okay, the cost is $80 or whatever, really the cost should only be the out-of-pocket expense between the $80 and the Medicare rebate. But what the feds have done, and I've, they've done it on purpose, is that they have frozen those Medicare rebates over many, many years. It's just been incremented on July the 1st, 2022 by 90 cents or whatever it is. But they've frozen the Medicare rebates for all procedures and everything. And therefore that gap is widening. And essentially what they're doing is, if someone told you, oh, the Medicare levy is now rather than 1% or 2% or whatever it is, or surcharge 2%, sorry guys, we're going to increase it to 4% tomorrow in the federal budget. There will be uproar. People would go, what? 4% for bloody Medicare? That is political damage and they won't do that. So what they've done as a sneaky way is by freezing the rebates and essentially ask the patients to fork up more and more gap fees over the last 8 to 15 years. And essentially the patients are not realising it and now it appears as if healthcare workers are more greedy right? Mm. So therefore, the, the government has beautifully strategized their move. And I think this year, the healthcare workers are saying, well, enough's enough. You're pitting us versus our patients. Mm. And we want healthcare for everyone, but you're forcing us to do what we're doing at the moment. So you take some of that blame by freezing the Medicare rebate. And essentially what they've done, AFP, is in addition to the surcharge, they are taxing patients in a stealth way. I call it a stealth tax by not raising the Medicare rebates. Because remember, the Medicare rebate is the patient's money. Now, here's another thing. So then the natural question is, if the doctor's fee is $80 or allied healthcare fee is $80 and the rebate is, let's say, $35, it makes complete sense to allow the patient to just pay the gap fee. Yeah? That makes complete sense, right? Yep, agreed. But legislatively, the feds have introduced legislation to ban healthcare workers from doing that. So what they, what, they, what they say is, no, 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 the patient has to pay upfront the whole money and then they'll get a refund of the Medicare rebate into their account. Mm. Now, that has two problems. One is 
$55 gap fee is cheaper than $80 total fee, right? I'm just using as a doctor's consult as an example. Therefore, you need to have more money to seek healthcare, right? Majority of healthcare workers disagree with that. We feel that patients should be able to access healthcare at the lowest possible cost, if not free at the point of care. That's number one. So therefore, if the aim of the government is to allow healthcare to be affordable, then they should allow gap fees to be the norm, but they don't allow it. The second thing is, it's a roundabout way of doing it. It's insane, you paying me $80 and then I'm giving you back 35 bucks. It's just stupid. That's just, a, more, again, more that admin. creates an administrative yeah. nightmare. Uh, and actually, they've purposely made it like that for the second point. And the second point is, they don't want you, they being the federal government, because Medicare is a huge expense, $33 billion, mm-hmm. they don't want you to go and seek healthcare every other day because it's going to cost them a lot of money. So this is a sneaky way of Makes reducing. And in fact, if you go back to the previous Fed's government many, many years ago, there was, there was one politician, I can't remember, a bureaucrat who actually said the average Australian goes to see the doctor 10 to 12 times a year and we think that's wasteful. Therefore, by stealth, we're, we're by gonna make it harder. making people pay, yeah. they're giving what's called a price signal. So they're telling patients, if you go see yeah. the doctor or the nurse or the allied health or the nurse practitioner, you're going to have to pay. So actually, it's better for you not to do that because, you know, it's just going to be too expensive. That, they, do, they do the same with um, Centrelink. They make it ridiculously hard. Like it's there it, as a safety net, but you've got to bend over backwards and it's incredibly difficult to get onto the system. Now, some people argue, the bureaucrats and, I mean, some other people as well will say that's a good thing because we don't want people jumping on there. Mm. But there is that other side of the coin to be like, don't you want people in need to have as smooth as a, you know, transition onto that service so they can get help uh, immediately. So it's, it's funny Absolutely. how they do that. And, and the majority of healthcare workers, we want to go to work and just do our job. Mm. Like I, I went to med school not to discuss finances with patients. I went to med school because I want to treat people. And I think the majority of people uh, in healthcare in Australia have that focus, but they're making it increasingly difficult for us to have that focus. And yes, to answer your question about the Reddits and, and, and what people discuss about, um, and if you're a non-healthcare worker listening in on this, provides this bit of perspective, is that they are forcing us to have those difficult conversations with our patients. Um, you know, why is it my responsibility to tell my patient, hey, cost of utilities has gone up, cost of wages has gone up, everything has gone up, that's why my fees have gone up. Uh, and by the way, your rebate has been frozen. Frozen, And by yeah. stealth, the government is taxing you. Why is it my responsibility? And I think as a society, we need to stand up and say that's rubbish. Um, you know, healthcare, she's a human right. Mm. People should be about to go and seek healthcare as many times as they want because once you start introducing barriers to people seeking healthcare, guess what happens? They don't seek it. They end up with uncontrolled diabetes. They end up with peripheral neuropathy and an ulcer. And then they end up in the emergency department. And every visit in the emergency department, the cost to you and I is $580. And every day in hospital is $1,500. So that $80 Mm. that you're trying to skim off the top has now resulted in a patient being admitted to hospital, costing the government and the taxpayer $1,500. 
$1,500 a year in admission fees. If they went to ICU, it's a $10,000 a day expense. And guess what? That takes that patient out of the economic cycle. So not only is it costing you, but they can't work, mm. they can't produce taxes, therefore the government is losing more money. But yeah. the average punter, the average voter, the average person in the electorate, mm. it's a very complex thing to understand. And when they read a headline that says, you know, um, healthcare costs are blowing out and, you know, there's there's all these you know inefficiencies in the system, I agree, there are inefficiencies in the system that needs to be addressed but the inefficiencies in the system is designed on purpose to, I feel, make things more and more difficult discourage for doctors, people. nurses and discourage patients. And I think that's abhorrent and I think that needs to stop and I don't care which side of politics you're on, uh, conservative or whether you're progressive. You know, even the most, I mean, I, I have a lot of listeners and I speak to a lot of people of varied opinions, even the most right-wing person in Australia would probably agree that if someone had a car accident, then when they went to the emergency department, the healthcare worker shouldn't really be focused on their financial status. Even the, even the most ardent, crazy person out there would probably say, actually, uh, to be honest, yeah, he had a car accident. It's not his fault. Let's treat him. Let's worry about the money later. And that's, yeah, that's I, what most people want to do. I, I completely agree. And I think, think you're right there. I, I was going to actually ask you about this, uh, this hit job that is happening in the media. It seems to be with healthcare workers at the moment. Um, is, and I also agree with you with the, you want to be proactive and this is so typical. I mean, we don't want to get into politics too much, but so typical of politicians and bureaucrats to think, to be short-sighted. And it's almost built into the system with um, just the, the the election cycles and everything is short-sighted and you don't have people that do long-term planning in politics. I'm sure there maybe are some people, I don't want to be, you know, to um, cast everyone with the, the same colour, but it's it's an issue and it's just classic political, you know, positioning or jousting, whatever you want to call it, to throw the healthcare workers under the bus. It seems like from a, from a uh, person that's not in the system, what's been going on in the media. And it's ironic because of what has happened in the last two and a half years to now go after these people that have probably, you know, been working 60, 70 hour weeks holding the country together in the last two years to now say, oh, it's costing too much money. They're, they're being greedy. They're mispricing. I don't know what exactly everything that they're complaining about, but it seems to me like um, it's, it's a bit of, bit of a hit job. I think, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, short-term political planning, it's a three-year cycle. Every three, four years we have an election mm. um, uh, and uh, it's much easier to focus on that than focusing on the next sort of 10, 20-year plans. Uh, I mean, look what they've done with super. Now, super is a marvellous retirement strategy. I know you had an economist on your uh, podcast who felt super wasn't, wasn't useful and, and that's an interesting podcast and I have listened to it and I've thought about a lot of it. But super is a great thing. But every few years, the government meddles with it. Oh, you can touch your super for um, your first home. You can touch your super for this. You can touch your super. COVID relief. Well, yeah, COVID relief. Well, um, was, wasn't, that, wasn't, that a, wasn't that a stroke of genius, political genius, how they funded th- that, that time they stimulated the economy using everyone's uh, retirement funds? And they didn't have to dig into their, their their coffers and like think of think of another solution. I, I thought that was like from a political point of view. I thought, wow, that what what a brilliant strategy politically. Like terrible consequences, but like wow, they they uh they really you know um, did that well from a political point of view. 
if they created a system and they keep meddling with it and then all of a sudden they realize actually the system's not actually working, of course it's not working because you've meddled with it and you've had multiple iterations of it. Mm. Um, so, I, I, again, this, this is a real, real frustration. And, 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 but to answer, your, to answer your question fundamentally, I think the majority of healthcare workers believe that healthcare is a human right. We do not like or want the North American American system. Uh, we think that um, patients should be able to access healthcare at an affordable cost. And we think, the well, I think, I shouldn't say we, but I think the feds have purposely made this so much more complex. And the Medicare freeze that's happened over many, many years has contributed to the rising cost of healthcare in this country. And what's interesting is that the healthcare workers' wages haven't risen that much, which is fascinating. So if the cost of healthcare is going up um, and if the wages of healthcare workers have, haven't really skyrocketed as much as cost of healthcare has gone up, who's making the money? Where's all the money going? Good question. Um, and, and this is where I think, yes, there are some inefficiencies that need to be looked at, but uh, it's far easier to pit the healthcare worker against the patient and divert that attention. I think collectively, healthcare workers, you know, nurses, doctors, allied health workers are standing up and saying, you know what, you're not pitting us against our patients because we come to work every single day for our patients. And to be honest, the average patient uh, is on our side. The average patient doesn't think that when they go to a hospital, the sole intention of that nurse or doctor or allied health worker is to rip us off. That's not what the average patient thinks. So 99% of my patients appreciate the care that I provide and 99% of my patients you know, believe that we have a good system. It's just the messaging um, has, has gotten misconstrued over the last sort of few years. And I think what's, what's interesting is, you know, during the pandemic, we're all heroes, but now the pandemic's over officially. I know. We're all the scumbags. Irony. It's mm. I, I could I couldn't believe like yeah I don't know too much about it like I said I'm not I'm not in healthcare I'm not you know a doctor or anything but I just thought wow like they they going after the healthcare workers after the last two and a half years bold bold move yeah which is which uh, look I think I think if they do continue to do this I think you know I always say I always say to politicians I mean I, I've spoken to a few politicians you know local mayors and all that I see more of the electorate than they do. So, you know, as a doctor, I probably see about sort of, you know, between sort of seven and 15,000 patients a year. I see more of the electorate than they do. I interact with the electorate on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, they need to be honest and openly communicate uh, their policies and stop, stop trying to score political points, you know, just for a short term, you know, election cycle year. Agreed. Now that was very entertaining. <laughs> Got my emotions up there. Um, look, uh, one more question, uh, and, and I think we'll probably um, call it call it a day. Uh, I think your fire number was one point two five mil. Um, is that right? That's that's your fire yeah, number. It's, it's originally was a million, and it went up to one point two five million. Uh, okay, pro- yep. probably will go up again, but yeah. Sorry, continue your question. Yeah, I was going to say with with so so you've sort of adjusted that based on what's happening in your life, you know, whether you're going to have kids and all that sort of stuff. And do you think that number is likely to rise in your case? And do you think 
that is a reasonable number? Or, I mean, on average, do you think that's a pretty fair number to aspire to for the firebug that's listening in that wants to achieve that financial independence? Uh, good question. We come up with that number. I mean, when you do the, the modeling for fire, I mean, the, the 4% rule is thrown out there a lot as sort yep. of the golden rule. But recently, um, well, I'll talk about the number first and I'll go to this other thing I want to talk mm-hmm. about. The So the number was a million dollars back in 2014 or something when I first started. Obviously, that rises with inflation. So you have to factor inflation in. So it is going to go up just by the nature of inflation. Mm. But it's especially after London, my me and my wife's lifestyle changed a lot and it's it was a permanent change. Like we basically we fell in love with traveling and now we travel a mm. lot more and we don't want to stop traveling. So that was a lifestyle inflation that happened that we're comfortable with, we want to continue to happen, so therefore we need more passive income. So I've set it as like a rough goal as 1.25 at the moment. If we have kids, that will probably go up. Um, I don't particularly like it's not something I I think about a lot because Mm. like I alluded to earlier on in the podcast, I'm already – I'm living the life that I want to live and it's going to do its thing in the background. Like it's it's not – I'm almost at the point now where um, if you want to call it, um, you know, coast fire or flamingo Mm. fire, whatever you want to call it, I'm at the point where – I have unchained myself from the cubicle and I'm doing my own thing and I get to run my own race. And that was always the goal with the financial independence for me, that retire early was retiring from the cubicle. That's what it meant to me. Now, I'm already doing that. So I I keep a little eye on the portfolio, of course. I run the numbers every month. I think it's healthy to do that. But I, I I don't really know what our fire number will be in the future, it will be more than it is now for sure. Um, I haven't really spent that much time thinking about it. And the last thing, that that's the first point, but the second point is I come across an article and I don't know if you've read it, Dev. Um, it's called the the flex rate. It's actually by David, mm. uh, strongmoney.com. Mm. Yes, have you read have the flex read it, rate? Yeah. Now that, that article, there is a calculator for everyone out there listening. It is, I mean, I've been consuming financial FI fire literature for over 10 years that was one of the most interesting articles on um, the modeling behind retirement and the uh, safe withdrawal rates of a portfolio that I have ever seen. It is one of the most unique articles and the calculator that he's got in this article is a ripper. I'd encourage everyone out there listening to read it. Now, to cut a long story short, I'm not, not going to go into the math and you know statistics behind it. You can look at that yourselves. Mm. But to cut a long story short, if you are flexible in retirement or when you finish your job. And even better if you're so when I by flexible I mean if you can dial down your spending um, in lean years, if the market's not doing too well, if there's fat to cut off the expenses. And more importantly, and this is this is what people I think either don't think about or I'm not too sure why it's not brought up more often, but if you earn some sort of income, and I mean some in in the lower sense. If you work one day a week, if you earn five ten thousand dollars a year extra, it blows out the modeling astronomically. Suddenly, the four percent rule you can dial it up to like seven percent. You can dial it up to ten percent in some circumstances if you're flexible with your retirement. And I just looked at that calculator and I was playing around, and I thought, 
The, the odds of us not earning any money for the next 40 years is extremely low. I'm doing what I like doing and I'm earning a bunch of money still at the moment. So like I just, I really feel like the 4% rule is insanely conservative for people that are going to fire young. If you're older and you're approaching the retirement age of, you know, 65 plus in your 70s or something, okay, that's a little bit different. But I just think for people in the fire community that are retiring young, and by my definition of the retire part, you're going into meaningful work. So you're probably like 95% likely to still earn some sort of uh, income. Go check out this flex rate article because it will blow your mind like a blue mind. And I just think that people can make the jump, the leap of faith a lot sooner than they think. That is my opinion. And and that's 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 uh my thoughts on it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, I have read that article. It's very detailed, very interesting. Uh and you're right. I, I can't envisage myself to just put up my feet and not do anything. Uh I will have some sort of income stream uh throughout my life, I think. You have the ear of thousands of healthcare workers listening in. You're not in healthcare. So what's your advice, money or non-money, doesn't matter. Um, to people that are in the healthcare space from a perspective of someone who's, dare I say, far from the healthcare space? What's your, what do you think, what do you think that we can do? Um, and I guess put yourself as a patient. What do you think that we can do to, to do things that are a little bit better than what we are doing at the moment? From, from a healthcare point of view? Just in general. So it doesn't have to be healthcare. Uh, it can be money perspective, uh, but I'll be interested to get your perspective on healthcare even. So um, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a hospital before. I, I assume you have. And what's been your experience? Because uh, our experience is, you know, it, we're trying to do the best we can, under-resourced, all that sort of stuff. There's a, you know, there's a lot of inefficiency in the system. It's not the perfect system. But we sometimes don't hear the feedback from our patients or from the consumer, from, from the person on the other side of the window. Uh, wh- what's been your experience like? And what do you think that we can do to improve that? Well, thankfully, I haven't spent too much time in, uh, in hospital, uh, touch wood. Uh, but the, the brief amount of times that I have been in hospital and been to the doctor and whatnot, I've had a fantastic experience. Um, I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time talking about the medical system or the, the healthcare space at all because it's not my expertise and I just think you guys are doing an amazing job. So all I'll say is just keep doing what you're doing. It's very disappointing for me to see what's going on in the media at the moment, especially after the last couple of years. Um, so I'll just leave it at that for the healthcare point of view. Sure. But from an, another point that I'll just you know uh, put out there, and this is not only for healthcare workers but just people in general that are on this journey to improve their finances, um, to live a better life. And listening to this podcast, definitely your audience, Dev, I would just tell people to start, if if you haven't started to think, start to spend more time on what you're going to do after you reach financial independence. Because financial independence, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, especially if you listen to this podcast, you're involved in the fire community, like you're going to get there eventually, right? And it's really important to know what you're going to use this new freedom and autonomy and wealth to do. And to even expand on that even further, it's really great to reach financial independence and to to live your best life and to um, you know, do all the things that you want to do, experience everything you want to experience. But even beyond that, and this is, is more a philosophical um, hmm. uh, answer, but 
you really want to start to like, what, what are you going to do that's going to bring meaning to you? And nine times out of 10, that's probably helping other people or leaving some sort of legacy or leaving the world in a better place than you found it. And it's a big question. And some people take, you know, it's decades for them to figure out, but I just, I want to plant the seed in people's minds that FI is awesome and it changed my life forever and it enables you to live an amazing life. And it's probably a main reason that you're, you know, consuming uh, this podcast and other content like it. But it, the, the real difference is what you do with that. And I just want people to start to think of how they would change uh, their situation, their community, whatever it is, um, to, to be better than, than how they found it and what that sort of looks like because you can actually move into the meaningful side before you reach FI. A lot of people think it's you cross the finish line and then boom, you're doing something else, but it's possible to do both things at once. And the earlier you start thinking about this, the better and the, the easier the transition is because the transition is very important. I've met people that have become financially independent, but they never took the leap of faith into something else or started doing meaningful work for a bunch of reasons, maybe because they were tied to their job so much. They had so much identity, but it wasn't a job that particularly brought them a lot of meaning. But um, I'll, leave it at, I'll leave it at that and just start to think about what your life will look like post-FI. Well said. Absolutely important to plan for life after FI because you know a number is just a number, um, but life is life. Now, nah, thank you very much for your time. Well, that's been a marathon episode. It's probably the longest one that I've had, uh, hour and something, fifty minutes or whatever. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your life to to, to spend time with me today and the audience. And uh, it always happens when I always speak to people and I say, "Yep, I'm going to have all these hardcore questions. I'm going <laughs> to talk about money. I'm going to talk about debt and fees and all that." We often digress and we often talk about stuff, including money, but also other stuff. And, and I think that's important because, you know, money is just a tool and, and just use it as a tool, tool that's to right. use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but um, make the lives of other people a lot better. Uh, AFB, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, now, if you're new to the podcast and if you want to leave a five-star rating, great. Please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or whatever platform that you may be using or leave it on all of the platforms. That's even better. And I really love hearing about the positive reviews. And uh, if you have any you know, feedback, feel free to just contact me on Facebook or Twitter. If you have a question, feel free to contact me on Facebook and Twitter, and I'll do the best I can in terms of answering it in one of the future episodes. Once again, AFB, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dev. Really enjoyed this conversation. It's been so much more about money and investing, and they're the sort of topics that I really like talking about at the moment. Um, I learned a lot of things as well. This was an amazing conversation, mate. Thank you very much. And uh, for everyone out there, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.